Blog Talk Radio. This is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show, and each month we dedicate 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, This month, our guest is Dr. Art Markman. Uh, Dr. Markman is a professor of uh, psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, he studied the way people form and use analogies, the mechanisms of decision-making, uh, the modes that allow people to form categories, and the influences of motiva- motivation on reasoning. So uh, welcome, Art. Oh, thanks, Brian. It's great to be here today. Well, great to have you. Uh, to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being of our part of, uh, of our family of over 5,000 listeners a month. And to our new listeners, we're glad you've joined us. And so today we're going to talk to Art. I'm I'm particularly excited uh, to talk to Art about some of the work that he's doing around uh, decision making. Uh, we have a lot of people, Art, um, who listen in that are both aspiring principals, uh, uh, aspiring education leaders, but also a lot of people that are currently uh, uh, practicing uh, leaders. Uh, all along the education uh, continuum from classrooms to building level and district level leaders. And um, I'm sure they're probably as excited to have you um, as I am on the show today um, talking about some of the the science associated with decision-making. So first thing I'd like to do, I know you have a program in human dimensions of organizations, and um, you, you, you have been studying this for quite a while. Uh, tell us a little bit about the current work that you're doing. Um, uh, please also tell us about uh, your, your, your latest book, um, but uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here, and and you know I, I like to to think about this in the education context quite a bit because there's there's so much decision making that has to go on on a daily basis, and and unfortunately a lot of us have uh, spent a lot of time studying particular areas of our expertise, and and of course you know learning about education, but not necessarily learning enough about the way we think. And I think one of the big pieces to this is to is to begin to understand the influence of some of your goals uh on on your decision making some of the work that that we've done that that stands out in that is that um one of the things we know is that uh if you have a goal that suddenly becomes active in a particular situation that has two effects on the way that you see the world around you and consequently the way you make decisions the first is it creates what we could call valuation which means anything related to that goal suddenly seems more valuable and more important to you. And perhaps more importantly, those things that are not related to that goal that's active right now become less important to you and become less a part of the way that you make decisions. So if you think about that education context, if you've got somebody who's who's coming down on you to increase test scores in a school, Suddenly, anything that relates to test scores becomes extraordinarily important, and all sorts of things that don't 
uh, now recede into the background and have less of an influence, even though in other contexts you might be very concerned about the personal development of students, the personal development of teachers and other things, you, you now are not focusing on those because of your concerns related to that motivation. Very interesting. So, um, you know, I, I think about uh, the, and I, I mentioned to you before that there's a course that uh, I teach at uh, Teachers College uh, with one of my colleagues. Um, it's the introduction to decision making, and um, uh, for individuals who want to become uh, principals, it's our summer principals principals academy. And um, one of the things that we we focus on is interesting that you you mentioned goals um, because we have them look at cases and and simulations so that they can uh, first set out to establish what are both in some cases short term goals and then long term goals. Um, very interesting point that you make here about um, the emphasis in one area or another. Um, causes uh, individuals to press other areas to the background. What are some of the implications? So if we think practically about that, uh, you gave the example of test scores for someone even at the building level. So as a strategy, how might they, how might they have individuals with uh, or, or help to support individuals with multiple goals that you, know, you can't just be singularly focused in education, obviously. There, yeah. there are a lot of priorities. Um, and so how do you think we you know, could strategically uh, have teachers or even, even principals focused on multiple goals to, to keep that from happening um, the way you're describing it? Well, that's a great question. I think there's several things that, that can be done that are really important, because because not uh, another piece to this that's, that that is that that different teachers. Let's say you're you're acting in a principal's role. You've got different teachers who are coming in with different motivations at any given time. You've got young teachers who are trying to prove themselves. You've got older teachers who are just trying to get through the day because they're a little bit burned out. You know, what are some of the things that we can do to help align everyone? And I think one of the things that's really important to do is to really think about that environment that we're creating for the teachers in the school, uh, because that that environment, both the classroom environment, but even the the extra classroom environment that that students may not see, you know, what, what's going on in teachers' lounges and other places, you know, that w where we can provide reminders of some of the key goals that we'd like to see our teachers uh, engaged in. And, and, and really, you know, I think providing support that way, providing those reminders in the, in the environment of some of the things that you'd like to see students doing. I think that's, you know, that we, we often don't use the environment in quite as effective a way as we could. I also think that that you know those kinds of of reminders you know I think a, you know great principals are always walking through the hallways chatting with people and encouraging people and part of that encouragement is those subtle reminders of what what we're looking for today what we're looking for this week and and how to keep focused on on some of the long-term elements of a school year because of course uh teachers uh, by necessity 
are focused on those very short-term goals of what do I have to do with my students today? And sometimes even if you've got a particular problem that you're dealing with in the classroom, how am I just going to get through this particular issue right now? And and then popping back up to, to thinking about some of the broader things you want to implement can be very difficult for an individual teacher. But mm-hmm. but that little bit of encouragement walking through the hallway, those little reminders are great ways to try and reorient people just a little bit so they can bring some more of that long-term focus back into the classroom. Sure, sure. It makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, related, um, I, I had an opportunity to read a little bit about your um, your book, um, Smart Change, and I'm not sure how much of this is related to it, but one one of the, one other area that I know you've done some research in is about the impact that trust has, and mm. and, and I'm assuming that certainly where someone is with trust um, and their levels of trust with either a group or an organization impacts how they make decisions both within the organization and concerning the organization. Um, there's a there's a uh, an adage that I have often repeated in some of the work that I do. I've I have uh, been uh, a researcher for many years in the area of school climate, and one of the constructs in school climate that has one of the really strong impacts on, on in, impacting the school day is what we call trust, respect, and ethos of caring. And and in in schools where that is perceived to be very high or very positive, we find that um, students, uh, the attendance rate is higher. Students are much more engaged. And and so then the, the adage that I was uh, thinking about is that I've, I've mentioned on more than one occasion that um, students don't care how much you know until how much until they know how much you care and that has to do with the the level of trust that they have for you how does and what you've seen in your research how does trust in an organization play a role in the the kinds of decisions that are made yeah no i mean uh, trust is incredibly important at all different levels of the education spectrum and you were you were pointing out a really important place where it matters in that teacher student relationship you know, in, in, in one of the things I do, so the book Smart Change is really a way of trying to distill a whole lot of research, some of which is my own and some of which is, is, is other work that's in the literature, looking at how you can change behavior. And one of the reasons that I wrote that book was to make the point that uh, not only do we have to worry about those principles when we're trying to change our own behavior, but when we are in a position of leadership and trying to influence other people's behavior – we often forget how hard it is to change our own behavior, and we focus on if I could just give somebody the right message, then they would change their behavior. And really, all of the principles by which you change your own behavior are also the principles of influence. They are the principles you use when you want to affect someone else's behavior. And a large amount of that starts with creating an environment of trust so that people are willing to be Uh, vulnerable in some sense, because in order to change your behavior, what you have to do is to get beyond the set of habits that you've created in the past that have worked well enough and to be willing to try something that might fail. 
Now, you can't be willing to make a mistake in in any kind of a situation if you don't trust the environment that you're in and if you don't trust the people that you're working with to help you to improve and and to help you to move forward. And so it's important to establish that level of trust. And one of the things I always talk about that really emerges out of a lot of the research is that we, in order to create trust, we have to create an alignment between what what you say, what you do, and what you reward. Because mm-hmm. as I as I always like to point out, um, you there's what you say, what you do, what you reward. But the people that you're talking to, they listen to those things in reverse order. So the things that are being rewarded are the things that they're really attuned to, and then mm-hmm. they're watching a little bit what you're doing. And frankly, the stuff you say is the least important. And so mm-hmm. if you want people to listen to what you're saying, you had better be, you know, walking that walk. And you'd also better be rewarding the others who walk that same walk. And when you do that, then you're creating that atmosphere of trust. Mm. Oh, I want I want us to stay on that one for a moment because you know, you you said a few things that were really resonated with me about you know uh, having individuals take risks. Um, you know, one of the one of the really strong um, characteristics that is is desired at least at least is being uh, touted as desired by uh, organizations in education right now is. is one of the characteristics would be a leader that is willing to take risks. Um, how is that developed first? And so, as I said, we have a number of people who are aspiring um, leaders who listen in on the show. Um, what are some of the things that they can do uh, to be more aware of their own levels of trust and how that is developing? So, so for example, you know, a lot of times, so we have a scale if we if we want to see how much weight we're gaining, okay? We'll mm-hmm. we'll go and get on a scale and say, okay, this is good. Uh, or, I've, you know, I've gained a little uh, uh, too much. Um, w- how can one look at um, their own development and say, I know that I'm going to be more willing to be a risk taker based on the kind of, 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 organization this is and the encouragement or the levels of encouragement what are things that in their own development even even someone that might recognize i have trust issues like say you know for various reasons what are what are some things at first that they could do to look at self that that's that's great that's a great point i think i think here's here's one thing that's really important to do which is to 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 just pay, begin to pay attention to your own emotional reaction when you engage in a situation in which you're thinking about a risk. Because um, risks can either be exhilarating or anxiety-provoking. Mm-hmm. And those two reactions matter a tremendous amount because they reflect different aspects of human motivation. So the human motivational system, and and lots of people have studied this, and we've certainly looked at that in my lab as well, the human motivational system has two distinct modes to it. There's what's called the approach mode, which is what you do when you're trying to achieve some desirable outcome. And then there's an avoidance mode, which is the mode you get into when you're trying to avoid some potential calamity. 
Mm-hmm. Now, think about what happens when you're in the in a situation in which you can take a risk, a professional risk. Often you you consider a, a, engaging in that risky behavior because it has a great potential reward uh, at the other end of it. Now, if you look at that risk and you think about engaging in it, if you are mostly excited, it means you're engaging that approach motivation, which means that you believe the environment is generally safe, and mm-hmm. so there's excitement about what you might achieve. But if you're fearful of that risk, then it means that that risk is creating avoidance motivation in you, which means that you don't believe your environment is safe to engage in that risk. And then you have to ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What is, what is the thing that's going to go wrong? Now, sometimes that, that fear comes from in, inside. It's not the environment that's causing it. It's that inside we are afraid of failure, perhaps because of the way that we grew up, perhaps because of things that happened to us in our past. We're afraid of failure, in which case we have to say, can I excite myself about the the positives in my environment but there are times where you're afraid not because of your past and not because of thing of just who you are but because really your environment is not supportive of taking those risks Mm -hmm. and in that situation that's where you can begin to recognize where these trust issues come from because now you realize i am not i am afraid to take a risk because of the reaction of my colleagues, because of the reaction of my supervisors. And, and so I'm going to, and, and, and so as, as leaders in schools, part of what we're trying to do is to create environments in which when we talk to teachers and when teachers talk amongst themselves about taking risks, that they are excited about those risks rather than fearful because we've created an environment that's going to support them and that is going to teach them the skills that they need when things don't go exactly the way we hoped the first time. Sure. And and that's really I think what we're going for. So I think when you when you look inside and you think about that emotional reaction, that's the point at which you learn a lot about how trusting your environment is. Wow, and uh, very fascinating. Uh to our listeners that may have joined us a little late, uh we have Dr. Art Markman with us um who is a psychologist at Austin, and we're having a conversation about the psychology of decision-making, and uh, we we have uh, some really good uh, uh, suggestions from Mark Art about um, the, the thinking about looking at self, um, some strategies for looking at self um, to take risks. Um, and and one of the things I wanted to add, um, Art, to something you were saying, I guess, by extension, if you say that that if you, based on your emotions, that those, um, whether the environment is, is safe enough, that impacts your decision, correct? I mean, if, if, that, if they, yeah. they say, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm experiencing fear here, it's going to impact the decision. Long, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And there's a lot of uh, physiology at work here, too. Um, one of the things that I am at least acutely aware of is that um, what happens when there's when fear 
sets in um, and anxiety, uh, a very interesting shift of brain uh, activity occurs um, where the most of the brain activity in a fear situation shifts to uh, the 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 part of the brain responsible for fight or flight. You know, so they got the uh, you know maybe the uh, medulla oblongata is the area where that takes place, but the place where if you want to deal with uh, um, uh, decision making, decision making, uh, analytical reasoning, speech. Uh, critical thinking all takes place in the cerebral cortex. That is not the area. If there's fear and anxiety going on, that's not the area that gets activated when you have fear. Yeah. Um, so um, I think they're they're really connected. Um, if you could tell us also a little bit. So we talked about. So how does one measure um, whether or not and for self. Uh, they are are in a, in these modes of trust and 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 willing to take risks. How do we see it in others? Because a lot of times it's easier, obviously, for us to say I'm experiencing anxiety. But what do we look for if we're in leadership roles and we want to foster a uh, a really healthy. Um, well-considered environment for risk-taking, you know, calculated risk, not just open risk-taking, but um, calculated risk-taking, particularly in education environments. How do how do we assess that in others from a leadership perspective to know we've adequately set the groundwork? Yeah. You know, and there we want to, in addition to just looking at some of the, the reactions that our teachers are having, because, of course, if they're fearful of things, that's telling us something as well about the environment we've created. But I think also looking at the group dynamic is important because um, it's, it's often very difficult to take risks alone. You know, we are fundamentally a social species, and, and we work much better in groups, particularly when those groups allow us to spread the risk and to share with each other. And I think that when we're asking teachers to take risks, part of what we want to see is, you know, are they, are they working together effectively in teams? Have we, have we created strong teams of teachers that are supporting each other? What kinds of conversations are they having? Have we have we developed an environment in which really organic mentoring relationships can occur because some sometimes we take risks as a school but a lot of times what we're doing is asking particular teachers to take a risk you know that they've been teaching things in a particular way for a long time and we're going to try and get them to transition to a a somewhat different way of interacting with their students or giving their students opportunities to learn um and sometimes those are techniques that have been been mastered by other teachers already in the school and and so are we are we seeing great conversations happening where teachers are working together and and are really engaged in that because what i find is that the more that you're having these con these positive conversations among teachers about the process and and about what's going well and what isn't the more that the that the dangers of any risk, the downsides of any risk, are now being spread across a large number of people, which generally makes us feel better about things. I think, you know, the, the scariest place ever to be is taking a risk all by yourself without a net. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And that that's definitely uh, something we hear a lot. Uh, and that net from what we do in leadership development, um, a lot of times comes from the the individuals above who are saying and encouraging um our students and in some cases our graduates to um to take those risks and without fear of being punished for that you know so right. the, and that's the net uh um that I, I think you're talking about um uh, it's just that encouragement um and 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 the lack of fear um mm-hmm. and and other other tactics that some people use to keep people in 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 order um, I know we only have a few more minutes, and I, uh, Art, I really uh, appreciate you being on the show. I want to give an opportunity because I know last year you um, released a book um, that I think is particularly interesting um, and will be interesting for a lot of our listeners um, because we, in in the programs that I teach at the university, um, they are about both uh, acquiring habits and acquiring the skills that are necessary to be a successful leader. Then um, we're talking about leadership in education. Um, you know, a lot of people um, for years saw these. You know, saw a lot of self-help books. You know, in the 80s and even in the 70s. You know, the little penguin books. Um, they'd have as you read and get some pointers and and it didn't seem until recently that people took as seriously the notion of self development and self help um as as it is now and I know your your book smart change um you highlight five tools to create new and sustainable habits in yourself and others. I want to give you an opportunity because I think this this guide would be helpful for a lot of individuals that are trying to develop into leaders um, and would and would really be something that they could have in their toolbox. Um, we use a lot of different texts uh, to to meet the needs of different students and with with different habits and different behaviors. Um, but I wanted to you to to just give us a kind of a sneak preview so that people who are listening that think that are struggling with some of these issues might be able to uh uh pick your pick your text up and 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 benefit from it. Yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to do that, Brian. I appreciate that. You know, we um the book Smart Change, a lot of what what I'm trying to do with that book is to help people to understand that when you are trying to change behavior, fundamentally what you're trying to do is is to reprogram a set of brain mechanisms that start with brain structures deep inside the brain, uh, these, these areas that are called the basal ganglia. Those, those centers are the centers of your brain that engage your goals and they drive your actions and they support your habits. And those habits are basically memories of what to do in particular situations. And when we change behavior, we want to reprogram that system rather than constantly forcing ourselves to try and exert what what you could call willpower, stopping yourself from doing the wrong thing. The way that you engage that, the the way you reprogram that go system is by focusing yourself on positive goals, things that you can perform rather than actions you're not going to perform anymore, by creating very specific plans, 
that help you to uh, create specific actions you're going to perform at particular times and days uh, so that you can create new habits. And this is true whether you're helping yourself or helping your students. We want to we manage all of the temptations in the environment. Certainly students these days have become masters at turning 45 minutes of homework into four hours worth of homework because of all the technology around. We want to manage the environment so that we make desirable behaviors easy and undesirable behaviors hard. And we want to make use of all the great people around us who can keep us on the straight and narrow when we need to and can teach us new skills that will help us to reprogram that, that set of brain mechanisms that will create new habits. And, of course, I could go on and on about this, but that's at least a broad overview of the principles that are there. And the idea is this is useful for yourself, but it's also useful if what you're trying to do is to affect the way that other people are going about living their lives. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks again for joining us on the show. Um, we, to our listeners, um, want you to come back and join us next month. Our next show will be on uh, March the 23rd uh, at 2 p.m. as usual, uh, where we have uh, Ms. Marchi Meacham, um, who is known as the Brain Lady. She is a scholar practitioner in education and learning. And so she's going to talk about um, her book about brain matters, how to help anyone learn anything uh, using neuroscience. Um, so we have a kind of theme going here that uh, uh, we're glad that, Art, that you kicked off, and it's been great. Um, again, the, the title of the book was uh, Smart Thinking, and so by all means, uh, if you think it will be helpful to you, go out and take a look. Um, and so until next time, to all our guests, thanks, Art. Um, go well, stay well. Thank you very much.